Right, I am communicating that it's 11.31 and I now have 59 minutes. <laughs> kind of feel, uh, with, typically with the content that I have, I, I kind of feel like the guy who uh, was driving a pickup truck down the road one day and this, uh, this guy observed him. He would, you know, going along at a normal pace, get to a red light and as soon as the light turned red, he saw the guy throw the car, the truck into park, jump out of the car, run around the truck, beating the truck with a baseball bat, you know, the, the bed or the thing on top of the bed. Light turns green, jumps back in the truck, goes on. Red light, same thing, jumps out, beats, beats the thing on the, on the, beats the truck on the side and jumps back in. And finally, he just, the curiosity gets a hold of him. He can't stand it. What are you doing? And so, so he follows the guy, guy pulls into a parking lot, does the same thing, and he pulls up behind him and says, sir, I just, I just gotta ask, I've been seeing you do this for multiple miles, multiple stoplights, why are you getting out of the truck and beating the side of it? Very simple, he says, I'm carrying birds in my truck, I have four tons of birds and I have a two ton truck, I've gotta keep two tons of birds in the air at all times. <laughs> That's the way I feel. I think that's apocryphal. And um, my engineer co-pastor friend um, has given me a lesson on why that doesn't work engineering-wise. But don't mess with my story. It's a good story. Um, after six decades of life, and I will say all of that time in the church, some of it I was aware of and uh, most of it I was aware of and a little bit not. Over half of my life, uh, married almost two-thirds of my life, now married, I have come to a conclusion. Communication is hard. (laughs) That doesn't mean I'm going to stop talking, but it does mean that I'm going to acknowledge that clear communication does not happen by accident any more than a house gets built by accident. It takes planning, it takes work, it takes labor, it takes perseverance. Uh, Maybe... Maybe you've heard this story. I'm stealing it from Chuck Swindoll. Um, The difficulty of communication exemplified in a series of classified ads started on Monday. Monday for sale. R.D. Jones has one sewing machine for sale. Phone 948-0707 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Kelly who lives with him cheap. Tuesday. Notice, we regret having aired in R.D. Jones' ad yesterday. It should have read, one sewing, masale, sewing machine for sale. Cheap. Phone 948-0707 and ask for Mrs. Kelly, who lives with him after 7 p.m. <laughs> Wednesday. Notice, R.D. Jones has informed us that he has received several annoying phone calls because of the error that was made in his classified ad yesterday. His ad stands corrected as follows. For sale. R.D. Jones has one sewing machine for sale. Cheap. Phone 948-0707 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Kelly who loves with him. (laughs) Thursday. Notice. I. R.D. Jones. Have no sewing machine for sale. I smashed it. Don't call 9480707 as the telephone has been disconnected. I do I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Kelly until yesterday she was my housekeeper, but she quit. 
Yeah, isn't that great? If we're going to succeed in communicating, uh, we're going to have to take great care and apply some biblical principles. For some of us, this is going to be a new way to live. And for some of us, this is going to be a reminder of what we already know. For all of us, these four principles are a solid foundation on which we must continually labor and on which we must build our communication. The issue is not will you communicate. The issue is how you're going to communicate. You will have conversation. Even if you don't have conversation. You will have interaction. You are communicating. In fact just this week I got an email from a member of our church. He had come by the church on on Monday. And he, um, he had gone to the class that Pastor Keith was teaching. On uh, biblical counseling. And he left the class and he was just kind of stopping by the office on the way out. We had a brief interaction with each other that I thought was pleasant and kind and uh, affirming and fun. And uh, two days later, I got an email and he said, um, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. But when you talk to me, you've got a look on your face. And were you displeased with something I said? I thought, well, uh, it was 1130. I was probably hungry. I don't know. Something I did communicated without words. And so I assured him, brother, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I know my face looks funny. I didn't say that. (laughs) Um, But I can assure you there's nothing in my heart that was displeasure. I I found delight in our conversation. I did it again. I probably did. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Yeah, That's right. That's right. Oh, communication is really important. Among the greatest troubles in marriage, you can make the list, but if you boil the list down, often it comes down to selfishness and it's twin pride and it's twin pride, don't it? It's all about me, about serving myself, desiring myself. And functionally, that often works out into poor communication because I'm wanting what I'm wanting And I'm communicating that in some way that comes out in an ungodly form. And when that happens in a marriage relationship uh, between husbands and wives, um, great difficulty ensues if it doesn't get corrected in a righteous way. Uh, Apathy will begin to set in and, and watch the progressive decline. Apathy sets in. I just don't care. It's too hard. I don't care. And from that, Relationship and communication becomes shallow and superficial. And from that, you begin making unwise decisions. Issues become unclear. Wrong ideas go uncorrected. Those wrong ideas become disagreements. Uh, You want one thing, I want another. That disagreement becomes a battleground and conflict ensues. We don't not only disagree. uh, Should we paint the paneling or leave the paneling? That's a disagreement. It becomes a conflict when we sin against each other over our disagreement. You're such an idiot for wanting to paint it. All you want to do is spend our money. You want to waste our money on that. Now it's become conflict because I've sinned against her. That was a real conflict between me and my wife for years, though I didn't sin in that particular way. Um, The conflicts then become and remain unresolved. And those unresolved conflicts turn into bitterness and hostility. And when bitterness and hostility 
are on the table. Now they start looking for other places of satisfaction. And you've just watched the marriage go down the tubes because there was bad communication. When we talk about communication, what are we talking about? Wayne Mack, this is adapted from Wayne Mack. Biblical communication seeks to share information with another so that the message is understood in the way it was intended and so the hearer is edified and given grace. That last part is really important. So what I want to do is walk with you through Ephesians chapter 4. You are familiar with this. uh, Verses 25 to 32. And what I want you to remember is the context in which Paul is writing this. So chapters 1 to 3, he's given all of, all of our position in Christ. He has spoken of the indicatives of our faith, the realities of our faith. Uh, there is one imperative in chapters 1 to 3, and it is the imperative, remember what you were. So, in fact, when he, says, when he gives an imperative in the first three chapters, it's really an indicative. Uh, about being reminded about what they were without Christ. And then in chapters 4 to 6, there are 41 imperatives. They're the commands that flow out of the indicatives. They're, They're how we live based on what we are. And we find that transition in 4.1. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So, All of the imperatives flow out of this desire for the Ephesians to live a worthy kind of life. And in the middle of the chapter, he reminds them of what they were without Christ as Gentiles. And he says, don't live like the Gentiles. And by Gentiles there, he simply means unbelievers. Don't live as unbelievers who walk in the futility of their mind. Verse 17, then verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It's all about the mind. They're thinking in ungodly ways. And you track that through those three verses, all the different ways that he refers to their ungodly minds and ways of thinking. And then in verse 20, he says, but you didn't learn Christ this way. In other words, you didn't come to know Christ as your savior in this way. That's not why Christ died so that you could keep living that way. Verse 22, why did you learn Christ that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. So put off the old man. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then verse 24, put on the new self, which self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So put off, renew your mind, put on. That's the, the classic explanation of what sanctification is, right? Following that, Paul, in a sense, says this isn't just theoretical, guys. There's there's a way for this to be fleshed out in your lives. And starting in verse 25 to verse 32, he gives multiple examples of what putting off, renewing your mind and putting on Christ looks like in real life situations. And we want to take those principles of sanctification, those practical applications of sanctification and apply them to the process of communication. So we're going to be looking at the at the principles of communication. Paul's not talking about moralizing people. He's talking about being sanctified in your speech. This isn't just 
rules for don't don't use this list of words, do use this list of words. I mean, that can be helpful at times, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this is what sanctified communication looks like. And the first thing he says in verse 25 is speak truthfully. Therefore, he says, verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The first building block of relationships is truthfulness. Isn't that interesting? Truthfulness is essential in our relationships and communication because our faith is built on the truth. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. So you came to Jesus by the truth, for the truth, now live the truth. Same thing, verse 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and in holiness of the truth. You've been created for truthful living. So speak truthfully. What does speaking truthfully look like? That means, verse 25, you will eradicate deceitfulness from your communication. That's the put off. Stop lying. When we think about falsehood, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about overt lying, right? A direct falsehood. And Paul says, stop it. And, and notice when he says, lay aside, he, he's talking about definitive decision and definitive action. It's being intentional and purposeful. But he's talking about something that is more than more than just direct falsehoods, right? There are other kinds of ways of perverting the truth. One is by exaggerating, adding truth. To enhance our perception. One becomes two, two becomes three, three becomes four, four becomes five. You know, ask a preacher, how many people are at your church? Oh, I don't know. You know, somewhere between 50 and 5,000. Kind of trending towards 5,000. Right? What's that? It's exaggeration. Just tell the truth. Um, Words like never, always, everyone, no one may indicate exaggeration. Concealing the truth, disguising the truth with innuendo and suggestion, a lack of clarity. It's not being willing to be direct or upfront. You're concealing for the purpose of deceiving. So now there is a kind of concealing that's appropriate. So when... Uh, my youngest daughter was still living at home. Uh, she was probably in high school at the time. Um, she knew that I would have meetings during the day. So, Dad, do you have any meetings today? Yep. Oh, that's right. It's Wednesday, isn't it? It's, it's the day that you and Pastor Keith have your staff meeting. Yep. Did you meet with Pastor Keith? Yep. What did you talk about? I had a meeting with Pastor Keith. No, Dad, seriously. What did you talk about? I had a meeting with Pastor Keith. Oh, come on, Dad. Tell me. We had it grumps. And I got a hamburger. It was really good. No, Dad, tell me. And one day she said this. I have a right to know. No. You do not have a right to know. 
Now, was I concealing the truth? Yes. Was I concealing the truth with intent to deceive her? No, she didn't have a right to know. It's none of her business. What goes on between two elders and how they're trying to care for the flock. It's not her place to know that. So that's not concealing the truth in the way that we're talking about it here. Um, that's holding confidences in appropriate ways. Now we're talking about evading, avoiding changing a subject, becoming angry, tearful to keep from dealing with the subject. We may do this by making foolish promises, by betraying confidences, by giving flattery, by giving excuses. Um, just unwilling to deal with it, putting it off. Oh, we'll, we'll talk about that tomorrow. There have been times where I've told my wife, um, I, I am not in a position for any number of reasons where I can talk about this right now, but I promise you we will talk about it tomorrow. I'll be home at, can we set an appointment tomorrow to talk at this time about this topic? I promise we will do that. That's not evading. Um, that's being intentional and purposeful to have the conversation that needs to be had and so that you can speak the truth then. Another way is by hypocrisy of life. So that there's an incongruity between what we say and how we live. We find that in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. When, he, um, when Paul writes that, actually he doesn't use the word speaking. Uh, it's a participle of the word truth. And so what he, what he actually is saying is truthing in love. And well, how do you truth something in love? So the translators have rightly said, well, he's probably thinking speaking. But it's not just speaking. It's everything I do ought to be done truthfully. Every, every conduct of my life. In fact, if you go back just a few verses, he's talking about conduct of life. And all that ought to be done truthfully. So, let me give you a couple examples. No, I'm not angry. I'm just hurt. I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm sad. No, brother, you're ticked off. <laughs> well, maybe. Um, is that a maybe yes? Or is that a maybe no? Or is that a maybe maybe? It's okay. I don't care. I've told you everything. So here's a dilemma for you guys. And I mean guys. You head out the door. Head to church Sunday morning. It's 8.45. You have a 16 minute drive. It starts at 9. If the lights break just right, you're good. And your wife says, how do I look? You look great. Uh, how about my stocking? Can you check the back to see if I have a run? Back in the days when women wore stockings. Now you look at the back of her leg and she's got a run. You have an ethical dilemma. Oh, friends, don't fall into the trap of believing that a small lie will alleviate the problem. <laughs> Lying never provides the shortcut to a happy relationship. <clears throat> it will always short circuit the relationship. Think about think about Abraham. He lied about his relationship with Sarah twice in the exact same way. Why does he do that? Because he's a sinner like me. 
That's why he does that. And he thought that it was a shortcut. And it wasn't. Here's what we put on. That's what you put off. According to that verse. What do you put on? Embrace truthfulness as your consistent pattern of communication. Verse 25. Therefore laying aside falsehood. Speak truth. Now that means a couple of things. One. You must speak. You've got to engage. You've got to talk. We are ordered to speak and communicate. Silence, and by silence I mean withholding communication, is disobedient and dishonoring to the Lord. Clamming up is not an option. Evasion is not an option. We must speak. Now, in your marital relationship, let's just apply this to marriage. In your marital relationship, one of you likely has more words than the other. That's my observation. Um, A pattern that I have seen, I don't want to generalize, but a pattern I've seen is that a woman that comes for counseling with her husband often has more words than he does. And she comes in and she'll say, he doesn't talk and he just sits there and he's quiet. You know, just kind of. Shrug his shoulders. And she'll go on for about five minutes about why he doesn't talk. And I said, you know, that's really interesting. I've had lunch with your husband just last week, if I had lunch with him last week. In fact, we get together, you know, several times a year for lunch. I never have trouble getting him to talk. I wonder why that is. Why I can get him to talk and you can't. Well, I don't know. Five more minutes. And I'll just graciously find a way to say, have you ever stopped to ask questions without answering? Because when I get him to talk, all I do is ask a question and then I listen. And then I ask another question and I listen some more. And then he asks a question and then he listens. And we have a delightful conversation. Some of this means, yeah, the one who's silent needs to learn to talk. But it also means the one who has more words needs to learn to stop talking. So that the other can talk. Because it's communication. One speaks, the other listens. The other one listens, and the one, or the other one speaks, and the first one listens. There's a back and forth. You've got to talk. Watch this. If he says, speak truth, failure to communicate is just as deceitful as a lie. It's rebellion. If I'm withholding speech... It's rebellion against the Lord. Some people are going to be clamors. They just want to avoid the hard issues. And I get it. There are hard issues. All kinds of them. And there was a season, my wife and I, it was not between us, but there was, there was a, an exceedingly difficult issue in our lives. It was not against each other. It was something we were battling through together. Something outside of us. And I told her one day, I said, this is provoking me to anxiety. And I need to control my mind. And if we're going to talk about this, it has to be finished before dinner. I'm not not wanting to avoid it. We have to talk. But we have to talk about it in a way that I'm not provoked to anxiety. And if we can finish by dinner, that will be really helpful to me. And she said, amen. (laughs) 
And that was our rule. And a couple of times, one or the other of us would intrude, you know, start the conversation and we just look at each other. It's seven o'clock. It's too late. Let's lay aside for tomorrow. So we can't avoid the hard topics, but we need to find ways to speak about them in gracious ways. Um, man asked his wife what he'd like for her birthday. She replied wistfully, I would really love to be 10 again. So on the morning of her birthday, he woke her up early with a bowl of her favorite cereal from when she was a kid. Then he whisked her away to a popular theme park for an indescribable day. Cotton candy, hot dogs, roller coaster, the death slide, everything. She staggered home from the theme park, head pounding, stomach nauseous, and he drove her straight to McDonald's for a happy meal with extra fries and a refreshing chocolate milkshake. Then it was off to the cinema for the latest blockbuster movie, of course, M&M's Popcorn the Works. At the end of the day, his wife wobbled home, collapsed, exhausted into the bed. He stands in the doorway with a big dopey grin. And he says, well, darling, what was it like to be 10 again? I meant my dress size. We need to speak. We need to speak the truth as a habitual way of life. Our words need to conform to reality. Need to be so careful not to twist the reality of the situation. I have a friend who is prone to saying, um, well, I don't care what people think. It's the truth. And I'm just going to say it the way it is. Speak, I mean, the Bible says that. Speak the truth. Uh, let's not forget this principle. Speak the truth lovingly. Speaking the truth, verse 15, in love. Telling the truth is no excuse for ruthlessness. Our responsibility to speak the truth doesn't mean we have license to say anything we want at any time and receive blanket immunity because, quote unquote, it's the truth. Now, there, there have been times when I knew my heart was inclined in particular ways and I could speak the truth, but I knew it would be harmful. And I would just say, let me think for a minute the way to phrase this that would be the most gracious that I can make it. And take the time. Speaking, speaking truthfully doesn't need, mean I need to speak immediately. I do need to speak, but I don't need to speak the first thing that comes to mind. I'm allowed to frame my words in ways that are going to be helpful. Um, How do you say what you say? Anyone can be truthful. Can you be gracious with your truthfulness? Proverbs 18.21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we give life when we speak truth lovingly, graciously, tenderly. So here are a couple of principles. Be careful what you say. Be careful how you say it. How much you say. When and where you say it. Why you are saying it. All those things ought to be uh, at the forefront of our minds when we're in conversation. Winston Churchill was known for being quick-witted and sharp-tongued. I think my favorite um, witticism from him was when he was asked at a formal banquet uh, in London that he was attending with his wife, Clemmie, 
the question, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? So if Winston Churchill can't be Winston Churchill, who does he want to be? And he thought for a moment, and he reached down and grabbed Clemmie's hand and said, I would most like to be Clemmie's second husband. Sweet. (laughs) Like apples of gold and settings of silver. There's a right word spoken in right circumstances. Why do we do this? This is the mind renewal principle because of relationship. Notice what he says. Put off falsehood. Put on truthfulness. Why? Because we're members of one another. We're in the same body. How can one part of Christ's body defraud another with deceitfulness? So the mind renewal principle is I'm part of you. And because I'm part of you, I will speak the truth to you. Second principle, resolve your conflicts quickly. Verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. What do you put off? Stop unrighteous conflict. There is an anger that glorifies God. Have you ever seen righteous anger? I mean, righteous anger that's not selfishly motivated... That's not because of impact against the individual, but because the name of Christ has been defrauded. You ever seen that? I think I've seen it once. Seriously. It's just really rare. And the problem with it is even when it's genuine, righteous anger, it's really hard to stay righteous. Because the propensity of the flesh is always to go towards making it personal instead of an affront to God and make it about me. And the Old Testament stresses two things. Psalm 37, uh, 5 and then 8 and 9 stresses that anger must not result in sin. Whatever the anger is, you can't sin with it in how it is expressed, in the way it is expressed, the words that are used, the tone, the inflection, the body language, none of it can be sinful. And the individual must be reflecting a trust in God at the same time. So angry and trusting at the same time. (laughs) I'll say it's almost impossible to pull off. And so Paul says, do not sin in that Unless it is that way with your anger. Do not, do not sin in your anger. Put it off. And um, typically when we're angry, we're prone to saying something like, Yeah, I was angry, but it was righteous. I had, I had a right to be angry, so it was righteous. No, brother. You were just hacked because you were inconvenienced. Or somebody took something from you. The problem with unrighteous, unresolved anger is that it provides a foothold for Satan. We'll see that in a moment. Anger is a relational killer. You may be familiar with the movie Princess Bride. 
You know the guy that plays Vizzini, Sean Wallace? He seems a decent fellow, but apparently not so. He said this. Many people have said, you seem like a harmless, cheerful little fellow, but you're saying these bitter things. What am I bitter about? I'm bitter about the way the world works. It's unjust. It's not just a little bit wrong. It's very, very wrong. I get up and I'm angry every day. End quote. Brothers and sisters, that's a relational killer. As Puritan Philip Henry put it, it is the great duty of all Christians to put off anger. It unfits for duty. A man cannot wrestle with God and wrangle with his neighbor at the same time. Short sins often cost us long and sad sorrows. In fact, John Piper has written, In marriage, anger rivals lust as a killer. I think he's right. Stop unrighteous conflict. Secondly, always resolve conflict. So be angry, yet do not sin. So put off ungodly anger. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. He means by that, resolve it. There's a two-step process to dealing with anger. Control it. Don't get angry. And when you do get angry, confess it. Do not let the sun go down. It's a, it's a negative of a present imperative, which means you're already doing this. Stop it. You've already cultivated this bad habit. You're letting things go unresolved. Stop it. You need to resolve it. Stop letting the sun go down on your anger. And when anger happens and conflict happens, the temptation is to stew on it. The temptation is to ignore it. Don't do it. So here's the question. And again, I'm typically applying these things to marital relations because that's where we tend to have most of the difficulties in communication. In a marriage, when there's conflict and when there is anger, how do you resolve it? I don't know how many times I've asked that question. And almost every time the answer is something like this. Well, I don't know. We just blow up at night. And then we go to bed. And we get up in the morning and we just go our separate ways because we both have job and responsibilities. So we go to our work and then we come home and we have dinner. It doesn't hurt quite so bad. And we just kind of start talking. Do you ever talk to each other about your sin in your anger? No. Do you ever seek forgiveness? No. Do you ever grant forgiveness? No. We just let time take care of it. What does time heal? Nothing. Time plus nothing times, excuse me, time times nothing is nothing. Time plus forgiveness practiced repeatedly builds trust. So if you're going to take time, then apply Reconciliation principles, confession and forgiveness, and then it will be profitable. Rather than being angry, confess. Even when the anger is righteous, 
It must be resolved. Don't let, and, and that's, that's the force of it here, right? So be angry and yet do not sin. And then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He's not just talking about righteous anger. He's talking about all anger. Unrighteous or righteous, don't let the sun go down on it. Fix it right away. Don't, don't let it dwell. Don't let it fester. So imagine this unusual scenario. You're going to bed and something comes up at 1015. I know it's unusual, but just imagine with me. And anger intrudes in that relationship. And now 10.15 becomes 11.15. And you're looking at the alarm clock thinking, it's going off at 5. I'm now under 6 hours. If I fall asleep like this second, I get 5 hours and 45 minutes. Nothing like pressured sleeping, right? To really help that process. And you were up at 5 that morning. Now you're at 18 hours and counting that you've been up. And you might not be thinking quite as clearly as you were at 5 in the morning. And you go, hey, the sun's already down. i got 24 hours before I've got to resolve it. Right till the next time the sun goes down. I don't think the apostle means let's do this legalistically. I think he just means get it done as soon as possible. So occasionally I've talked to my wife and just said, look, we're not making progress. We both want to resolve it. We know we're going to resolve it. Can we just make an appointment for tomorrow, 7 o'clock, kids are in bed, and we'll fix it then so that we can get some sleep now and both be rested for the day tomorrow. And then she says, that's a great idea. She puts her head on a pillow and she's asleep in 30 seconds, and I kid you not, (laughs) and I still lay there for longer than 30 seconds. Uh, Here's the point. Just resolve it as soon as possible. There may be times when you can't resolve it, right? Somebody dies. You know, it happened five years ago and they've passed away and it was never resolved. You want to resolve it? You want to go back and reconcile? You can't. What do you do then? You entrust it to the Lord. You resolve it with him. You go to Romans 12 and he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. How does he how does he enact vengeance on sin? He pours it out. On the sinner for all of eternity in hell. Or he poured it out on Christ and he is satisfied. Both ways the sin is accounted for. In a much greater way than I can ever account for the sin. So I can leave it in his hands knowing that he will take care of it. Either in Christ or in hell. But it will be taken care of. And I don't need to take advantage of it. Or I don't need to manipulate circumstances. Um, What happens if conflict remains unresolved? Notice verse 27. Do not give the devil an opportunity. You don't resolve conflict. And Satan has an opportunity to bring in resentment and hatred and bitterness. And he has an opportunity down the road to enable you to import Old sins in fresh circumstances? Will you always? This is just like when? Do you remember? But when you resolve that, that's all off the table. The fresh circumstance is a fresh circumstance without the influence and weight of past circumstances. Because that was let go of and your promise in forgiving was, I promise not to bring it up and hold it against you again. 
And so you don't import those. If you don't resolve, if you don't reconcile, uh, then you have an opportunity to bring all that stuff back in again. And ultimately, when unresolved conflict is in a marriage, it, it endangers even the sexual relationship because the division happens between the couple and they just start going away. And at some point, one or both of them are going to say, there's got to be a better, better way to do this. There must be somebody out there who will love me. And they'll find them. And then you've got an even more complicated situation. When conflict and anger escalate in a relationship and a barrier is formed, what do you do? You want to ask questions like, do I have all the facts right? Proverbs 18.13. Do you all know Proverbs 18.13? Proverbs 18.13. He who gives gives an answer before he has heard to him. It is wisdom. Oh, no, wait a minute. Folly and shame. You want to listen. Do I have the facts right? Have I really understood the circumstances before I've jumped in? What's my motive for bringing it up? Um, Have I dealt with my own sins, my own logs first? Is this something that my love should cover? That is, it's already been confessed. It's already been forgiven. I don't need to deal with it again. Are my words loving? Um, I will will role play with couples when they come in. I love premarital. I'll, I'll ask them every time they come in on a premarital session. Hey, did you guys have a fight this week? No, it was just bliss. Rats. Hey, did you have a fight this week? Oh, you wouldn't believe it. It was, it was horrific. It was the worst fight we've ever had. Huzzah! Why? Because I've got a teachable moment. And I go back and we role play it. What was happening in that instance when you said, you're a stupid cow. I don't know anybody ever said that, but they actually have said worse things. But... When you said that, what was driving that? What did you want? What were you wanting to do to her when you said that? Why did you want to hurt her? What do you get out of that? See, now we're talking about motives. We're talking about idols. And unless they have that conflict, I can't dig that stuff out very easily. And then I say, okay, so what happened to precipitate that comment? Okay, now let's think about what would a word of grace been in that moment? And what could you have said in that moment that would have been helpful? We rehearse it. And I give them a whole line. I've had more than one guy say, hey, can you come home with me for the next week? Uh, but that's why we do that. Um, are the words loving and kind? Is my timing right? Have I prayed? And ask God for wisdom, help and understanding. And then again, note, note the warning. If I don't enact these things, I'm going to give the devil an opportunity. Third principle, be gracious with your words. Words are really vital. How many words flow from our lips each day? How many words flow through our minds each day? From the moment we awaken till the moment we go to sleep, we're using words to communicate with others, to comprehend others, to form our own thoughts and ideas. Words are vital. And how we use our words, both in our hearts and in our lips, 
is reflective of what we are spiritually. Out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. Right? So people say, oh, I didn't mean that. I was drunk. No, no, no. Drunkenness loosened the lips to reveal what you really did mean. And it's exposed what's been the meditation of your heart. You just got caught is what happened. So words reveal our hearts. So what does Paul say? Verse 27, uh, verse uh, 29, excuse me. Let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth. Avoid unwholesome words. And Paul is talking about three particular dangers with our words. He's talking about the words themselves, unrighteous words. Uh, Unwholesome words are words that are corrupt, rank, foul, putrid, rotten. That word is used about spoiled fish, about decayed trees, about rotten fruit, about crumbling stones. It is anything that is unusable, unfit, bad, evil. So let me give you some categories. This is off-color jokes. It's profanity. It's dirty stories. It's vulgarity. It's double entendre. It's any corrupt talk, including malicious gossip and slander. It is anything that injures others and gives dissension. It's nagging. It's sarcasm. It's harsh criticism. It's defensiveness. It's argumentativeness. It's words that attack character, that divert us from the real issues. It's the kind of words that grieve the Holy Spirit, that says, I didn't make you to do that. He's also talking about the motives behind the words. He's not just talking about the words themselves, but he's talking about the selfish goals and the selfish desires that motivate the unrighteous words. So what's driving that? What do I want out of those words? I want to make sure I'm heard. I want to get my way. I want to win the argument. I want to hurt the other person. I want to make myself look good so I'm witty and sharp. I want to manipulate. I remember many years ago now, I was at the grocery store one morning and there was a a gal there who, um, she just was a little bit uh, harsh, um, a little bit, uh, curt, a little too direct. And um, she was an older lady and just seemed like somebody that just kind of didn't get along well with life. And I was there one particular morning, and I don't know what precipitated the conversation, but she and another employee were going at it. And the other employee blurted out at her and said, Nobody likes to work with you! Well, I shopped at that grocery store pretty regularly. And what I discovered over time was that she'd had an adult child die. And another of, adult, of, her, another of her adult children was dying of cancer. And she was faced with having to move and take care of that child. Now, I'm not excusing how she treated others. But it gave me a context to understand why she was the way she was. Because she didn't have Christ. And it wasn't surprising that she conducted herself that way. So we want to ask the questions. Why are you saying what you're saying? He's also not just talking about the unselfish goals and desires. He's also talking about wasted words and wasted opportunities. Listen to me. God has given us words to share good. And when we speak unwholesome words, we waste opportunities. 
It's too long of a story. But I, had a, I spent the night with my daughter here in Fort Worth so I wouldn't have to drive back to Granbury last night. And I had an opportunity this morning that came up and I thought, I can express to her that I'm disappointed in what happened or I can affirm to her my love for her. What am I going to do? Because this opportunity is going away. I thought that. This is the only time I'm going to have to give this response in this situation and I don't want to waste it. I was disappointed. It actually cost me a not insubstantial amount of money. And I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for God to take that money and use it to invest in my child and show her I love her. And if I respond in anger and bitterness, that's gone forever. I've wasted the opportunity that the Lord opened up for me to demonstrate love. And so when we speak with harshness, we're throwing away chances that will not come back. You don't get to rewind the clock. Those words are out and they can't be changed. Um, Use words to encourage. That's the put on. Let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. Edification means to build, to build up, to strengthen according to the need of the moment. In other words, in every moment, there's a word or a sentence that can build somebody up. There are probably about 792 that can tear them down. But there's one that will build them up. What's that word? That's what needs to be spoken. That's what you're pursuing. That's what you're looking for. Why? So that it will give grace according to the need of that moment. In that moment, there's one grace word. Find it. And give grace in that moment. We want to use words to encourage. For tests. Do I understand the goals and motives of the other speaker? Are the words beneficial Are they of value to the hearer? Uh, My wife and I enjoy cooking and um, we've picked up a bunch of different things over the years to enjoy cooking. I remember on one particular occasion, I don't even remember now what I made. But I made something and we're sitting at the dinner table and I said, is this okay? Is Is it satisfying to you? She said, is it okay? Iron Chef needs to call you. Oh man, can I cook tomorrow? Right? That's a word of grace according to the need of the moment. Am I that good of a cook? No. Of course not. I don't have that caliber. I don't have that skill. I don't have that knowledge. But was she gracing me in that moment? Absolutely. Are the words appropriate? Some things need to be said, but they don't need to be said in that moment. You can hold them. It's part of truthing in love. Are the words gracious, kind, Do they give pleasure and profit to the hearers? Do they reflect the grace of God that you have received? Do they reflect the grace that you are concerned about protecting the other person? C.J. Mahaney tells a story about a woman who was sideswiped on her way to the grocery store. 
And it's the first time she's been in an accident. She's a little upset. She's trying to think through, what do I need to do? So she grabs the glove box, and she's looking for the insurance papers in the glove box. And she pulls out and finds an envelope, pulls out an envelope with her name on it, Mary. And so she opens the envelope. Uh, the word Mary was in the pen of her husband. And so she opened up. And her husband wrote this. Mary, if you're looking for this insurance card, you need to hear this. It is you that I love and not the car. That's a man who prepared to give a word of grace according to the need of the moment. And that's what you need to be looking for and finding. We want to be solution oriented. We want to attack problems. We don't want to attack people. That means you can have difficult conversations, but you can do so in a way that loves and affirms and gives grace. Why be gracious? Here's the mind renewal part. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If we withhold grace words and we give unwholesome words, we grieve God. He sealed us for the day of redemption. The simple way to say that is he saved us to do the opposite of the very thing that we've just done. He didn't save us so that we could continue in our sin. He saved us so that we could be liberated from our sin. And we need to meditate on that. What are the words that God has saved me to deliver to others? Fourth principle, be ready to forgive. Verses 31, 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's the put off. Aggressively put off every kind of angry word. Verse 31 has lots of angry words and lots of angry attitudes that need to be put away. You can summarize it this way. Put off any kind of word that is crabby, explosive, vengeful, loud, sarcastic, or injurious, or any other kind of evil. Get rid of all of it. And some might say, yeah, but I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. (laughs) I get it. Put it away. It's a different kind of spiritual gift from a different kind of spirit. And I say that because in all honesty, that's part of my wrestling. You need to fight those things and put it off. I've actually, I've actually gotten to the place over the years where I've just said, Lord, I, I not only need to stop saying this, it's been a matter of not saying it. I need to stop thinking it. Because the only reason I want to say it is because I'm thinking it. And somebody says something and I want to be witty and I want to be cute and I want to, I want to be shown to be articulate. And all I'm doing is tearing people down. And you need to start aggressively thinking in other kinds of ways and fighting it at the battle, at the level of the mind. Positively, what do you put on? Verse 32, actively, continually pursue attitudes of forgiveness. B, verse 32, kind of, excuse me, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. That word be is actually a form of word that means be, be in the process of becoming. Um, it is, it is something that is a process. It's something that is to be continually pursued. Constantly pursue kindness. Things that are useful, suitable, worthy, good, pleasant, moral, reputable. Tender-hearted. That word tender-hearted means having healthy bowels. Doesn't tender-hearted sound better than that? <laughs> right? So inwardly, the inner man is healthy. 
He's conscientious. He's compassionate, forgiving. He's ready to exercise full and liberal pardon. Now, we understand that we can't transact that until confession is made. But you can be way ready to do it. And that's, that's your heart. I am ready to forgive. I love to forgive. I want to forgive. Even if it's not yet been asked for. Two qualifications for forgiveness. Who's the object of forgiveness? Everyone. Forgiving each other. Except. No, 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 no. Everyone. Went to a church one time. Years and years and years ago. And uh, was visiting. I was in seminary. Visiting the church. Sunday morning, a guy, pastor got up. I don't remember the passage he was speaking on. I just remember something he said at the end of the message. He said, some of you in this room are sitting on opposite sides from each other intentionally. And you have not spoken to each other in 10 years. You're coming into the same room. You, you come into a room and you see the other person there. You turn around and walk out. You're intentionally avoiding each other. Those are unforgiving People, ungracious, unkind, unready to forgive. And we don't have that option. We do not have that option. The only option we have as followers of Christ is to be like Christ and be ready to always forgive everyone. Secondly, the basis of forgiveness is God's forgiveness of us. How can I not forgive when I have been forgiven so much? The more forgiveness is practiced, the greater the commitment to the relationship and the greater the joy in the relationship. Sin in a relationship does not destroy it. What destroys it? Lack of confession and lack of forgiveness. That destroys it. And when we are unforgiving, we are setting the course towards a broken relationship. Our problem, frankly, is that we just have little faith. We really don't believe that's true. So we hold on to hurts and we nurse them and feed them. And we refuse to forgive the sins of others against us. And instead of barriers coming down, we're just building these massive walls that are impregnable. Summary, all these principles come down as a result of a renewed mind. We'll speak the truth when we recognize our relationship with each other. We'll resolve conflict when we realize the opportunities for Satan that are at stake. We'll use gracious words when we want to extend grace to others. We'll be ready to forgive when we are motivated to do for others what God has done for us. These principles are our responsibility regardless of how others communicate with us. I get it. Some people are just harder to talk to. I know that. I am that guy for some of you. I know that. But regardless of whether or not they are easy to speak with, it is our responsibility to communicate with grace and gentleness. And changing habits may be difficult, but by God's grace, it can be done. Communication is difficult, but it is a means through which we see God's grace, God's sufficient grace extended to us. Okay.
We are 1230 spot on.